This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. And if you've been following along, uh, welcome back. If you're new, welcome to the show. In this uh, episode, I'll be sharing with you a conversation, which I'm hoping to be the first of many conversations, but it's a conversation I had with a friend of mine, someone I consider a Dharma brother, um, and his name is Greg Berdoulas. Greg and I met back in 2004 when we were both practicing together at the Pandita Rama Forest Meditation Center in Rangoon or Burma. And Greg had been there at least, I think, for eight years or so. He was in the middle of his eight years of a stint as a Buddhist monk, and I was there just as a yogi practicing for two months. Um, but as you'll hear, the reason I'm bringing Greg in is that I want to be start. I want to start having conversations with colleagues of mine, friends that I've uh, met and really uh, valued along the path, and I want to open up what our practice has been like, what the tr- what the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations have been, and I'm hoping that having these very candid, kind of informal conversations. Um, open up something for you in your own practice. So I hope you enjoyed Greg today. And before I give you that conversation with Greg, one thing I want to say is that the audio quality is a little bit um, not so great. I don't know how else to say it. I'm using a new service and I'm just getting the hang of the new service um, for these recordings. And there was something that I didn't detect during the recording, like a background hiss or static I think it's on Greg's end, but I don't want to blame him exclusively. Um, I'm not sure what it was going on, but anyway, you'll hear that. So just think of this call, this 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 conversation, like an overseas telephone call or something. Um, going forward, that hiss will hopefully be eliminated with some better audio settings. But that's one thing I just want to mention before the call or uh, for the episode. And the second thing is. Um, Part of the reason why I haven't released an interview in a while is that on the back end here, Terry and I have been just kind of underwater for the last few months with the migration of our new platform. Our website is now fully migrated to its new home and we couldn't be more happy with it. It's clean, it's clear, it's easy to navigate, it's easy to find things, and it's a great home for our practice sangha where we have an online library with all our classes in yin yoga, qigong, meditation, um, and we also have a suite of on-demand education offerings in yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, particularly around Chinese medicine, if you're interested in the relationship between yin yoga and Chinese medicine. So do check out the website, consider joining us, if you go into the show notes or you go to our homepage at joshsummers.net, when you subscribe for our newsletter, you will receive a free copy or your free copy of the What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga, as well as receiving a two-week introductory offer of two weeks of free classes with us in our practice community, or our practice sangha. So if you're interested in Yin Yoga, Qigong, and meditation, uh, you can get a free ebook, What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga, you can also practice along with me and Terry in our weekly classes over Zoom. So we look forward to practicing with you. And I realize before I give you this talk, uh, Greg and I just dive right in. We start reminiscing about our time in Burma together, what we what we feel like we we learned and what what we took away from that time. Um, but in future episodes, I'll get into what who he is more, what he's doing now, what his what is what his life has been like. But I hope you enjoy today's pra- conversation on practice. 
deep in the Dharma. Okay, so today I am with an old friend, Greg Berdoulis. Greg, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Thank you very much. And for context for the listeners, just to give them a sense of what we're up to here, um, in the evolution of my podcast, I've been, which is named Everyday Sublime, and the intention is to explore a full spectrum spirituality. Um, I've been wanting to have in-depth conversations with friends of mine that have are deeply practiced and, um, in these, the intention around a conversation like this is to kind of roll up the sleeves, air some stuff out, talk about the highs and the lows, and just to give people a better, you know, a, a felt sense from two folks like you and me around what the trials and, and, and journey of the path can be like. And in, in holding that intention, you kept coming to mind. So I want to sort of explore with you how, how we came to meet. I can tell my side. Um, but I'd also like to introduce you to the audience and, and give them a sense of your background and, um, what your work now looks like. Um, but I, I, I bring you on board here, uh, with, with, uh, you know, real reverence in a way. And, and maybe to, to start there, I believe we met, I think if the date is correct. We met at the end of 2004, in Burma. And I had shown up or showed up for a, a two month meditation retreat at a center in Burma. And when I arrived there, you were one of the other Westerners, uh, already practicing there, I believe. And I got to know you a little bit, maybe just in passing before the retreat began. Um, but going into the retreat, you know, I, you know, I, I felt like I got thrown into the deep end of practice on that retreat and, uh, I was grasping at any beacon of light or buoy in the, in the storm that I could hold on to. And I have to say, uh, you among a few others, but you particularly were a, a real source of inspiration to me. Uh, just, I could feel, uh, you, the, the power of your practice in you. And, um, maybe we can get into that a little bit, but, you know, I was, I was very inspired by you and after the retreat, um, and for the audience to, to historically place this, we got off that retreat and learned about the tsunami in, in, in Asia oh. in 2005. So there was like that, that whole, uh, kind of a earth eruption in a way. Um, but after the retreat, I learned that you had been already a monk practicing in, in Burma for uh, quite some time. And then you stayed on for quite some time. And it was only, I think maybe I want to say five to six years later that you came back. My, my dates could be wrong. It may have been sooner, but you came back to the States and we connected for a bit in Boston. We went to some yoga workshops together at a studio I was teaching at. Um, and we had a little reconnection, um, but then, then life, you know, took us in our separate streams and, um, and really that's, those are our touch points in, in human contact. 
but in reaching out to you for the show and reconnecting with you and in, in, in anticipation of, of having this kind of a conversation, um, I recognize, and I think, I think you might feel the same is that there's a, a potential here for two soul brothers of sorts to have, um, some real, uh, interesting conversation about, about practice and, and life. Um, and I think, you know, I, I might pause there and just, you can fact check me or correct me if I'm wrong, but like, well, there, I, I would like to, uh, add, uh, perhaps contributions of what mostly questions and, and a few, um, statements. So, um, the reverence that you spoke of, I, I could feel that in Burma mm-hmm. and like part of me is happy with that because, Oh, I'm being noticed. Oh, I'm special. And even though in Burma, so that was like, what, 15 years ago, 16, something like that. Um, it, it didn't feel like we could have a solid relationship because that was getting in the way. But at the same time, there was something about Josh's perception of himself Mm -hmm. that was getting in the way of uh, what I would call an authentic connection. Mm -hmm. So... So you're flagging, and I'll write this down, Josh's idealization and its obstruction to more authentic connection as a, uh, yeah. as a, as a person. Yeah. I think yeah. that's th- definitely a, a good topic to open up and I'm happy. I'd love to get into that. Great. Great. And one of the lovely things is now I don't, I don't sense that obstruction. I, I, I sense appreciation from you. Mm-hmm. Maybe reverence, or maybe yeah, like deep appreciation. Let let me that that's sufficient, and 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 I can feel that in return to you. I can feel, according to me, I sense maturation. I sense evolution in your being, Mm -hmm. and which makes you for me a much richer person to engage with mm-hmm. okay so that's one thing so uh, i wanted to ask you you know when you were thrown in the deep end and grasping what was going on for you <laughs> well uh what was going on then it was a tumultuous time in many ways i had just finished graduate school for mm. where I had studied acupuncture for about four years. And it was during my training in acupuncture that I, I started going on silent retreats at the insight meditation society. Right. And I really fell in love with retreat practice. Um, and during school, I, you know, I'm, I'm laughing because of my coffee mug here on the inside. It's inscribed no drama. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my life was pretty, you know, was pretty drama filled at that time and uh-huh. um, has had drama since too. But, um, you know, I was in, I got into some matters of the heart, we could say relational heart mm-hmm. matters that mm-hmm. brought me into some, 
some significant drama and pain. And mm. it all kind of came crashing down before I came, went to Burma. So I arrived in Burma mm. on the coattails of mm. trying to finish myself, get myself professionalized, um, mm. and also, you know, really coming with a deeply wounded heart, I would say. Mm. And, and I was looking, but I knew that a friend of mine had suggested that I, I, I go to this retreat and she said, you know, you're going to have six months after graduate school, before your, your student loans kick in, you'll have this grace period, mm-hmm. capitalize on it. She said, there's a teacher there mm-hmm. go study with him. So not knowing very much, I, I, I took her advice <laughs> and, um, and I, I, you know, looking back, I know I was looking for, well, in the, the Buddhist language, I was looking for Nibbana. <laughs> I was looking, mm-hmm. I was looking for some mm-hmm. freedom mm-hmm. up from myself, um, but, you know, and, and to put it in, in broader context, too, you know, when I got back from Burma, I, I, I started up in psychotherapy with someone and they made the, the observation that many people, not many people, but of the personality disorders that get drawn to spirituality. Uh, he said mm-hmm. borderline and narcissistic personality types get drawn to spirituality. Mm-hmm. And the way he broke it down, he said borderline folks are looking for certainty. They're looking for like a certainty of, of truth. Mm-hmm. And then the narcissistic type is, is, is looking for a way to be able to get up and look at themselves in the mirror and not be disgusted in the morning. <laughs> and I, you know, when he said that, it was like, oh, I think the, the latter kind of fits the, the, the bill here. Uh-huh. Um, so that's, that was sort of my context. Of, 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 uh-huh. I think it's yeah. a, I, I would say it, describe it now as a pretty common trajectory of spiritual bypassing in a way where I was trying to use practice to go do an end run around personal pain, uh, unresolved wounds. Well, and, or it's one more possibility to relieve the suffering. And okay. So um, that particular center has a schedule of walking meditation and sitting meditation back to back for 14, 16 hours of the day, roughly. So just could we clarify that's the, it was, um, how do you say the name of the center? It's been a while. Shaman Gong, Shaman Gong. Well, I'm Pandita Rama. Pandita Rama is what I use as its name. Pandita Rama. And, And it was, the center that the the late Burmese master Saida Upandita was sort of the guiding teacher at, right? And, yeah. and we, we can come yeah. to his style at some point <laughs> in this conversation. Um, yeah. So the reason I'm asking, the reason I'm outlining the rough schedule of a day is because you like plunge into that schedule. You don't ramp up. You arrive and you're expected to walk for an hour and sit for an hour and do that many times, many, many times a day. And coming with a broken or a deeply bruised heart or wounded heart and coming off of 
uh, an education and and preparing to launch into a professional role. The the, the amount of of uncertainty and perhaps chaos in your life seems huge, mm-hmm. huge, huge. And I know for me, if, if that were my condition, my mind would be very busy figuring things out and reviewing things with the partner and what I should have said and what I should have done. And well, yeah, but I should also email this guy and set up a interview, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I'm bringing your context into a monastery in the monastic mode that, that it, it, it appears to me like there's no transition. Like you're, you're finishing graduate school with a busted heart and then bam, you're in a monastery. So it's not surprising to me that there would be grasping. But I would, I would like to hear you talk more about what would be an experience of your day where your, your body is walking and sitting for hours on end. Mm-hmm. So what was an experience, you know, and I appreciate the question. Um, I had, I do, I mean, part of the reason why, you know, I feel like our connection is a little timeless is that I have never practiced in a, in a space like that before for that long. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. there's an intensity that you're describing to it, whereby every event of the day kind of gets seared <laughs> into your being and to your memory cells of, you know, what's it like when you wake up in the morning? What's it like when uh, you go to have breakfast and all of that? So, you know, not to get into the weeds too much with it, but, you know, I can say that, I mean, the first few weeks were hell, were, were real hell. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that was that the teacher himself was, I would say, riding me hard or ch- mm-hmm. confronting me with stuff that felt, you know, like sucker punches to the gut every time I went to see him. Um, okay, can, can we pause right yeah. there? Because, you know, to here's here's a question that how do I hang on hang on I don't want to I don't want to introduce the question was he mean to you it's it's a hard question to answer you know I, I can I've, I've, I've gone around that a few times so I can give you the oh. specifics you know I think I even shared with these with these with you before um, you know, for a while he, he, he just, when I, at the beginning, he'd tell me essentially, I didn't have any respect for the practice or for the Dharma or for the Buddha. Mm. And mm. so I would try to cinch myself up and, you know, wrap myself up with as much respect as I could perform in a way, you know, Mm. so my bows became even more reverential. My movements Mm. became Mm -hmm. slower. Um, and, and and so that was how the, the exchange began around respect. And then 
he, he would point blank say I wasn't making any progress and that I was at one point he told me I was wasting my time. And, hmm. uh, at another point he brought in the, the person after me that would interview after me for the, for the interview. Mm-hmm. And he said, just sit, sit aside, listen to her report. And I did. And then he said something like, so in the same time that you've made no progress, she has made great progress. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it was, it was like, I mean, he, it may have been the case. And I know this, we can speculate this, that the teachers at that level seem to know the punch code for every student. I know that there's that view. That, um, and so I, I, I kind of, in, I held it that way. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, and I think even it was after that, that shaming in comparison to the other student, I felt like I, I something was getting lost in translation in the way I was communicating with him. And mm-hmm. I finally learned how to speak and report about my experience in a way that kind of fit the, the template of how to speak yes. in those situations. And once that happened, he seemed to get pretty happy about things. And, and so it was rough for like two or three weeks and I almost left for Thailand. I almost quit. Uh, mm-hmm. but then, then he, he softened up and just said, keep good, keep practicing. You're doing well, keep practicing. You're doing well. Um, but to your, to your other earlier question though, about just, you know, what a day was like, I, I remember there was that wood block it wasn't a gong, but it was this hollowed out log hanging in the, in the middle of the forest that some monk would get up and whack, just wail on it with another big, like a baseball bat kind of a stick. And that would be this, this very hard to like, don't, don't. Right. And, and yeah. you just hear yes. that at, what was it? Three o'clock in the morning, three thirty. Yeah, and, and, and that was enough you that you had to get up. And I remember my, my, my leg, my hamstrings and calves felt like they had shrunk to about an inch in length. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was cold in the morning. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll fast forward now a little bit. Morning sittings. This, is, this was always interesting to me. Morning sittings until breakfast, it was judgment day. Meaning mm-hmm. I felt like the past karma was just assailing me mm. with why did I do that? I should be like, what an awful mm. person, like the shame, mm. this self-loathing mm. came, would come in and it would just mm. envelop me for those morning hours until mm. breakfast at five thirty, mm. And then once I fueled up and then went back to this, to the meditation, the Dharma hall, the practice with the fuel in me, it was like, I, the power of concentration or mindfulness, whatever, either one was strong enough that it was able to just evaporate oh, all of that. And I would have a really good day <laughs> until about five thirty in the evening when my blood sugar yeah. would tank. Cause we only ate our last meal at ten thirty in the morning. Um, and so when my blood sugar tanked, that's when the, 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 the trial oh. of judgment picked mm-hmm. up again. And, and, and also my body would give out and I just, I just, and that's kind of where I was latching on to grasping at you looking at you. Mm-hmm. Cause I remember to give context for the audience too, uh, uh, you can correct me if my details are inaccurate, but you were a monk at the time. And I remember 
around one or two o'clock in the afternoon, after you'd done a bit of walking practice, you would sit down on your very minimal cushion. You know, very, very minimal. You didn't have a zafu like me or <laughs> very minimal cushion. You'd sit down, compose yourself, and then I would check back at you. And it didn't it seem like you hadn't moved in, in the span of maybe four hours. That, that you had this long stretch of sitting. And I had never seen something like that in my life. I'd never seen a human mm-hmm. sit down, be that poised, seemingly motionless, seemingly, mm-hmm. you know, in peace and equanimity. I have no idea what your experience will find out soon. Um, but mm-hmm. that's where the inspiration came. It's like, okay, if, if this guy can crank mm-hmm. out four hours... I got an hour. I can do an hour. And, but still the last 10, 15 or five minutes of every hour, I was, it was like fire biting ants crawling all over me and that kind of thing. So does that give you a sense of kind of the, the inner terrain? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Can I, can I ping pong back to you? What, you know, where were you? So that gives a little sketch of where I was coming from in entering that tree. Right. What was what was your life prior to that? Those two months, like, and what was your what was your day? Like? That's a, got it. Well, first of all, I had heard about this place, Bandito Rama, and I was it had a reputation of being incredibly strict, and. I wanted to go there at some time, but I built up to it. I'd practiced for three years before, or two and a half, something like that, before I felt like I was ready to go there. So that's a huge difference. When you say practice for two or three years, do you mean as a monk? Yes. Yeah. So you were a monk. Yeah, at Chamye Yekta with Saida Chan. Ujanaka. Ujanaka. So that practicing at his place was much more relaxed and much more individualized. A person created his own or her own schedule. So uh, that, that makes a difference. I like my body was accustomed to it. My mind was accustomed to it. And then the the sitting longer was to give myself a new adventure, a new challenge. And uh, eventually that somebody there says, no, you can't sit like that. And so I asked for permission to sit in, I don't know if you remember, next to the Dharma Hall there was a, you know, next to what would be at that time that you were there, the woman's meditation hall was a little, a little pagoda type thing where interviews would happen. And that, that meditation hall is used for the rest of the year. Um, when the, the number of people is smaller. So, um, I would go to the, uh, pagoda and practice and and I was wondering if it's possible to sit for longer and longer and longer and and it eventually became eight hours 
which was my, I, I didn't want to go more than that. But there is something that I'd like to tell you about uh, the process of sitting in one place for eight hours. And one thing is there was a clock that's on the wall uh, 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 that's powered by the, by a battery, and it would go tick-tock. <laughs> and I, for, for many, I don't know, hours, days, I'm not sure, but one of the questions for me was, is there a difference between the first tick and the second tick? I get the tick-tock difference. Yeah, okay, got it. But what about the tick-tick? <laughs> because I had learned that everything is changing. Impermanence is a law of creation. So it made sense from that perspective that the tick-tick would be different. And what my ears were actually able to hear was that when the second hand was going down the clock, like from two to three to four to five, that had a different tick-tock sound than seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. That may not be important to anybody else. But it does give a window of perspective into what happens moment by moment when attention and concentration are relatively well-developed. Can I ask you about that? Yeah. Because you, when you say mindfulness and concentration are relatively well-developed, I don't hear you saying this in this way, but I can imagine it sounding like, not, not because of how you're saying it, but just I can imagine it, it sounding like, oh, it's an achievement that you, Greg, or I, Josh, were able to develop mindfulness and concentration yeah, yeah, yeah. in a particular yeah, way. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, one yeah, of the things yeah. that I really yeah. deeply came to appreciate in that center was that whether it's a person like you, Greg, or a person like me coming off the heels of chaos and going into that environment, mm -hmm. you know, whatever human form goes into that structure, it's almost like the structure mm -hmm. and, and just the, the, the persistence of applying the intention to practice again and again and again brings out the, that balance of mindfulness and concentration that you're describing. Yeah. I, mean, I, I saw my mind doing yeah. things I couldn't have ever dreamed it was going to be able to do as a result of that training. So I just want to flag that, that this is, this isn't about yeah. egoic inflation that oh. like, look at us for it's more, this is, a, this is a human potential that my conviction, anybody yeah. has access to this if they're willing to apply yeah. themselves in a particular way. And, and the conditions of that monastery are ideal, optimal. And just, I mean, for I, I, my practice blossomed there. 
um, I was flourishing there. I had dreams of walking this far off the ground. I could look into the blue sky and feel how it went all the way to Africa. Mm. Well, even when you're speaking about the, if I, if I, let me reflect this back, the, the, the second hand, that it has a tonal mm. difference depending if the hour hand is going down. The, no, 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 the, the second, the second hand. hand. Oh, it was just the second hand. I thought you were, yeah. okay. Right, so yeah. the second hand, if it's going down the, the one to six, it's sounding one way. Down I mean, or six up. to 12, it's sounding another way, but that's a, yeah. that's a level of sensitivity. And, you know, I can, I can imagine like a, a non Dharma friend of mine hearing that and saying, well, who the hell cares about distinctions in, in ticking yeah. clock, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's representative of the sensitivity of attention that is not just about the second hand ticking, it's about every momentary experience that you're having, yes. right? And, yes. and, 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 and this is yes. where the, coming back to the idealization, I could feel that in you. I could uh-huh. feel that you had, because it, what, what attracted to me wasn't some, and I can't, it's hard to put this into words, but it was, I had a sense that you had an aesthetic, you were having a deeply aesthetic experience of beauty hmm. with literally hmm. everything. <laughs> <laughs> everything was a form of, of aesthetic pleasure to you, whether it was washing your bowl, taking a step or walk, you know, sitting down on your cushion or getting up, yeah. rearranging yeah. your robe. Um, in a way it was like, I experienced it as a bit of, I mean, not saying you're a performer, but it was like performance art. It was just like, wow, what a, a, an uh-huh. experience uh-huh. Of, 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 of pleasure and beauty there. So I think that's what you're, 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 you're giving listeners a sense of is that when, I mean, you described it dryly as just the sound and, and the tonal change. But what was, what was the other side of your experience like within that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, beauty is a word that I wouldn't have used then. Uh, um, satisfaction is close. Um, like satisfaction moment by moment by moment. Um, The absence of worry, anxiety, uh, hurry, concern, and entrusting the environment, which includes the people, to support my practice. And, and it, and it opened such a grand possibility to trust myself. Whereas the myself part begins to dissolve at the, at the edges and there's just trust. However, um, there were other, there was another monk who may have had a similar impression as you because there was a time when we were lining up outside and we were sort of mingling. This doesn't happen very often. Maybe it's before or after a Dharma talk. And I'm leaning against a pillar and looking up into the blue sky and I could feel my face smiling. No, Nobody else does this. 
I'm doing it. And and there is another monk who says one word in Pali. I think it's Taha. I'm, I'm not... Ta- I don't remember the Pali word for greed or lust. Do you happen to remember well, the, uh, it? Tonha? There's Loha, Moha, and... I get confused with, with the, um, the Sanskrit terms in yoga. They're similar. Yeah. yeah. Did you say Tana? Like grasp? Okay. Well, tana? let's. Tana. Yes. Yeah. yes. Tana. Say it again. T-N-T-A-N-H-A. It's the, it's the second noble truth. It's the grasping. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's what he says. Or rather, this is what I hear as I'm, gazing at the sky and enjoying the the breath and the depth of that blue and the incredible spaciousness of all of that and he says ta tan did it did it feel like a wrist slap yes, yes. well yes. and and anecdotal to that you may remember the teacher, Saida Upandita, would give in his talk. Sometimes there would be admonishments to the bad yogis, which I put myself in that category. The admonishment of the, of the bad yogis who are taking delight in gazing. Oh, <laughs> I mean, we got a half hour lecture about taking delight oh in gazing, whether it's looking at that. birds or. F- but that might have been directed at me. <laughs> But that, you know, that sets the, that gives people a little sense of, I mean, it's hard to convey the tone of this place because, I mean, you are encouraged to basically mm-hmm. keep your gaze down, not, not yeah, make eye contact right. with others. You're meant to move like you're an invalid. You know, these are the, <laughs> these are the, on the instructions though, move like a sick old invalid and, and, and like yeah. glacially slow pace. And, mo- and monitor your moment-to-moment experience through the practice of men- making a mental note. And I don't know if you're still doing that, but that's, yeah. yeah. I felt like I was, uh, you know, robo, robo Buddha, Robocop, just walking around, just yeah. noting, <laughs> lifting, placing, sitting, breathing, you know, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. speaking of things that took a while to adjust to, that was a, that was a hard one. The practice itself. Oh my gosh. Um, yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I remember, uh, so in walking meditation at that place, there's this phrase, lifting, moving, placing. And to, to give you, and particularly the listeners, an idea of how off that process can be for a human being like me. I'm saying lifting, moving, placing all the way to sitting down. Like I'm no longer lifting, moving, and placing, and yet those words continue to repeat as I'm actually sitting down. And I, I catch what's going on, or, or, you know, it's sort of like I wake up to the fact that I'm in robo-meditator mode, robo-cop, robo-Buddha. I kind of like robo-Buddha. Thank you for that. I love that. <laughs> Which is certainly not the what the Buddha is about. Okay, wait. There was something else I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. The gazing thing. So when when you're when we're eating, 
like the gaze is down at the bowl. And what I noticed was that I could sustain that kind of visual attention. And this is where I often lost it, is I would take a drink and I would lift my eyes and then suddenly, wham, everything around me is important. And from their perspective, distracting. I wanted to tell another story. So, uh, like 7.30 at night, when it gets, when it's hot out, the, the air feels dead and there's no energy. I mean, it takes energy just to maintain survival when it's hot. And at 7.30 at night, I would get so restless. Like the body would just want to do something, something, something. And I remember going out onto the balcony and uh, lying down, which I'd never seen anybody else do. (laughs) And a monk comes and taps my foot. And here's another somewhat similar story. I would get so tired, like eight to nine o'clock would just be, oh, so difficult. And at this particular place, we would bow after sitting down or after meditation. So you, if you're sitting down, the bow is, you, it, how do I say, you're already very close to the ground. And typically one bows three times. Well, I bowed and um, fell asleep. <laughs> okay, I'm not the only one. <laughs> but I'm not the only No, because what you're describing, that, that those those evening hours, they were I didn't know you were struggling, but I huh. again, we hadn't eaten in a long time. The air was heavy, it was hot, mosquitoes yeah. were out, we had to be in mm. mosquito nets, which even mm. slowed the movement of air down even yeah. more. And yeah, you described it perfectly. I mean, I, I was crawling out of my skin and I would more or less do a, I'm going to just bow down and surrender here. And one time my forehead hit and I woke up in a little puddle of drool, I think. <laughs> okay, Josh, like I can imagine your listeners yeah. saying, what the fuck? Like, why would any, like, how is this a good idea? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it does raise the question. What is the, what's the, I don't want to say value, but what's the, so what, why do we, why would we put ourselves through that? Um, what, what did we discover? And, and I think you, you, you hinted at it or spoke to it a little bit already, uh, when you talked about when we're talking about the second hand and, and when your attention, your mindfulness and concentration were that balanced and strengthened, it sounded like there was a dissolving of, a, of the self boundary or you experienced mm-hmm. a, a flow of no self, which I'd like to hear more about from your side. Um, but that was coupled with a trust. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, like conjoining those two is a very interesting pairing because you know, whenever I try to share the Dharma with folks and if that 
particular topic of non-self or anatta comes up, mm-hmm. people can get pretty defended. You know, they get uh, they're resistant to that idea that it feels nihilistic in a way, or yeah. it just feels like a cognitive thing that doesn't doesn't have, have much appeal. Whereas if you if you speak about like Advaita Vedanta teachings, I used to do this in my in my yoga classes. You know, if I if I shared Buddhist teachings with a particular reading about no self or non self, nobody would come up at the end of the class. <laughs> but if I wrote, if I shared a reading from say Nisargatra Maharaj on the nature of mm-hmm. self with capital S, everybody would come, Hey, can you share me with that reading? Can you let me know? That? So there's this, there's this thing in Buddhism that is a little bit of a, a, a branding uh, problem for it. But I just ask you openly, what do you, when you use that phrase, what do you, what do you, indicating what are you pointing to what are you describing okay Okay. Uh, i want to pause before i answer because i want to see if there's something that comes before that (sighs) Hmm. first of all there are other stories to tell about bandita rama so so I just want to shelve that for now, mm-hmm. and I and I want to come back to your question. This is this this question. I want us to be able to address each time we meet, because Definitely. there will be new ways of explaining it, and perhaps new experiences to describe. And here's the other thing, Josh, in in my world, um, describing the ineffable, impossible. And some people manage, like, whoa! Mm. (laughs) And I'm so impressed by that. And I pay attention to language, and I pay attention to presence that conveys what for now I'm just going to call the ineffable. Okay. Now, uh, so for me to answer the question of what am I describing or what am I talking about when I use the phrase no self, there's a two step. There's two steps I need to say before that. So here's, Here's step one, um, sitting in meditation, realizing that <clears throat> my past is completely gone. Like it's like each word that I say, suddenly it's gone. Which meant for me that the future was wide open. Hmm. Josh, to, 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 to be seated in deep silence where that becomes the truth is, is there, there's a kind of euphoria that re, that is so deep. It is it, 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 like the gonads are euphoric. The, The base is 
Yeah, euphoric, not ebullient, like bubbly, vivacious, pop happy, but more like, wow, there's there's so much good that could happen. That's not quite right, but it's a version of understanding that the past is gone and it doesn't determine my future. And what I'm talking about now is how that is a beautiful, fundamentally optimistic perception. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I want to jump ahead two years later doing walk-in meditation. And remember this lift, move, place notion. So I was quite aware that in the lifting of the heel, the, the toes and the ball of the foot are still on the ground. In the lifting of the heel, if there were a photograph, there, there the photograph would show a difference between this and this. But this part is already gone. When I'm at here, this part is already gone. Let me see if I can describe that for the for the audio audience. So you're demonstrating oh, good idea. The, the walking motion where your heel is lifting, and let's say it's there's there's several angles of the foot where the yes. heel is lifted Great. and the balls of the toes yeah. are still on the ground. And so yes. let's say you yes. you initiate the lifting of the heel. It's at yeah. ten degrees. Then it's at twenty degrees. Yeah. The balls are still down. Yeah. Yeah. Thirty degrees. Yeah. And, and yeah. what you're pointing to is that at 30 degrees, you're realizing 10 degrees is gone. Yes, exactly. Okay. 20 degrees is gone. 18, 19 degrees, gone, 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 gone. And Josh, what hit me was, holy shit. My whole identity is based on a past that is not here. Everything that I think I am is based in a past that is not present. It's, it's, it's a thought. It's a memory. It's a concept that was developed during a time that is not now. That scared the shit out of me. Because the question arose, well, then who am I? Mm-hmm. If, if, I'm, if, if I'm not going to base my identity on something that's not present, then who am I? And, and, and the who am I, the, the fear was that I'm nothing. The fear was that I'm just a thought. And... In the Visuddhimagga, um, written by, I can't remember his Budokosa, name right now. Right? Thank you. The, yeah, I, I've, only, I've only dipped into it. I can't claim to have read it cover to cover. <laughs> okay, but here's the thing about that. Like, it, I think it's 16 or 17 stages of enlightenment or steps to enlightenment. Can, can you it, confirm it's, that? it's around, it's in the teens, mid-teens. <laughs> All right, so let's say it's 16, just for now, yep. for our sakes. No, 17, that's a little better. (laughs) So 
phases 13, 14, and 15, and maybe 16 have names like terror, absolute fright, fear. Can I contextualize this? Because this is, this, this yeah. we can, we can unpack this more too down the road, but um, just to put a broad context on this, in the particular model of practice that we were engaged with in Burma, they are, they are, I would say, trying to move every practitioner through these 16 or 17 stages of insight. And they, they more or less seem to unfold in a progressive developmental way. I mean, according to theory. Um, and I'm trying to think, what is the first one? It's like awareness of body and mind or, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, but, but there, there's, these speci- there's specific insights about the nature of experience that, that, when they are all cumulatively realized lead to this great release or <laughs> awakening of sort. And what you're describing is towards the end of that developmental stages of insight. There are some really rough ones. Yeah. <laughs> there's some, I mean, there's some pretty high ones in the middle. Like, uh, uh, you know, yeah. like there's one called the arising and passing away of phenomena, which yeah. doesn't necessarily sound blissful, but, uh, and I'm not diagnosing myself having crossed that so much, but, uh, you know, some teachers I've worked with have said, oh, that's what it is. And, and it is, it's a very like energetically blissful, yes. joyous experience. But then on the other yeah. side of that, we come down the hill a little bit or come down the mountain and right. end up in some gnarly terrain. Right. And you're, and you're, you're, so you're talking about this right now. Josh, I'm not sure about that. It makes sense to me, but I, I'm not the person to determine. Yeah, we're not verifying. We're not, we're not yeah, yeah, confirming yeah, that's, anything. That's, we're just saying it seemed like this. Yeah. So, and, and, and it, it may be that this is what that document is referring to. Um, and it, it is, It, for me, at least, imagine that this is what it's like to be alive and not confined to an ego, not confined to a small self. And, and this is that small self that's running around being important. And that this small self is facing the grandeur of no self. And it becomes afraid. That is one way to think about what had happened to me mm-hmm. when I realized everything about, quote, me is based on something that doesn't actually exist. If I can reflect back <clears throat> and share a an, an analogy that I've used a few times mm. from Burma. Um, mm. Essentially, you're talking about how through memory, thought, sensation, mm. fears, anxieties, you know, the emotional landscape and thoughts, all of them, all of those experiences, when we reference them in the past, kind of solidify a sense of a separate me 
that that's mm. the owner of those experiences that possesses mm. those experiences. Mm. And the way I sometimes just think of this or have, have experienced it is that the, your known self is known through the rub with the past and the future. It, it mm. rubs against those, mm. you know, it, it, oh, it, it finds huh. tangible security in them. And while we were practicing there, you know, you were in monk's robes, but I was a, a lay practitioner and the men were, were kuti, uh, uh, bonji, sorry, bonji, yeah. the, 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 the hoop skirt. And at a certain point on that retreat, doing our, our own laundry as we were, I got lazy and said, oh, I don't need, need to do underwear anymore. Like I'll just wear this skirt and go commando yeah. style. But, th- but there I was doing walking meditation in my lunge, uh, in the Dharma hall. And I noticed that there were times at the end of the walking path where the fabric of the lunge no longer was in contact with my legs. <laughs> and it would seize me like a, like a panic fear that I had somehow lost my bottom because <laughs> it wasn't in contact. With, I wasn't in contact with it. And I would, I would startle and look down and I'd go, thank God, it's still on me. I'm not naked. Um, but there's, I think what you're describing touches on that, that when the, the sense of self is yeah. no longer yeah. rubbing against its familiar yes. fabric of identity, oh, right? Beautiful. There's, a, yes. there's this, there's, you're exposed as naked and not knowing who you are. Yeah. And that yeah. can be, I mean, it can be blissful at times. But it can also bring what you're describing, like a, a, a real terror. I mean, the other one, the, the analogy, I'm sure you grew up watching Roadrunner and, and Wild Coyote cartoons. Yeah. You know, one of them would go off the cliff and they'd be hovering yeah. in, 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 the, in the space <laughs> off the cliff for a second or two before consciousness dawned. Oh, I'm, I'm not on, on firm ground anymore. And then they'd start to scramble to get back. And there's a way... Like, that whiplash of, of practice where the, the yeah. sense of self grasps after what it knows. Yes. There's a, there's a, yes. I, 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 there's a can conjecture about it, but it, it, I think it's a, it's a very pr- like primitively wired mm-hmm. habit. Yeah. You know, uh, a friend of mine is a neuroanatomist and author, and we talk about the brain and the parts of the brain that, uh, are like the amygdala and the alarm center and the emotional centers and then the cortical part that does more of the thinking reflecting. <clears throat> and it would be interesting to bring some of that brain anatomy into this discussion, but not right now, because I want we're still answering the question of what do you mean when you're talking about no self? Um, In a related way, I would remember coming out of sitting meditations feeling like I, I am resurfacing to breathe. And what, what I believe was happening for me was that when mindfulness and concentration were developed enough, there's only experience and there is no me there. 
However, I don't notice that until I come back to the surface and then (sighs) the me starts breathing again. And to be underwater without breathing doesn't, doesn't compute. And yet that is the experience in the sense of not being confined or driven by a small self. Let me, let me drill into that a little bit, because I think the way you described mm-hmm. it was quite interesting. And I may not have heard you correctly, but in when, you're, when you said you were sitting in, your, in the meditation, it, you said there was just experience, I think. Yeah. And there was no sense of a separate me. Yeah. Observing, yeah. experiencing, watching. Yeah. There was just yeah. sounds, sensations, yeah. thoughts. Yeah. yeah. And then you came out of the, it was when the sitting ended, yeah. you would get up and it was like coming yeah. out of water and it was yeah. like, oh, the familiar me is back. And, and that, and that yes. feels like it's breathing yes. again. Yes. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few different directions I could go with that. I mean, first, I'm, I've been reviewing the Bahia, the Bahia Sutta, uh, oh. sharing a little bit oh. about that. And, you know, in that Sutta, the, the Buddha gives instructions to the seeker Bahia to say, this is how you should train yourself. That uh, in the in the sight, there's just the sight. Yeah. In, in the sound, there's just the sound. In the thought, there's just the thought. and the yeah. sensation, there's just the sensation. And when for you, Bahia, th- that is the case. Sights are just sights, sounds are just sounds, sensations, etc. There's no you there. There's no you beyond there. There's no you between here and there. <laughs> and and so it's it's it's. I'm hearing you, and it's 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 like there's a there's a dissolution of a sense of a separate me. It's not that yeah. ex- experience or existence stops. Right. It's just the the the, the boundary line of. What's me and not me yes. is erased. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 Well, uh, to me, that's very well spoken mm-hmm. and, and makes sense and describes experience. And I want to, so, because there's, there's, the way you described it, there's a lot there too, because you said earlier that when you realize the past was gone, like, and it wasn't, it wasn't just like a, an intellectual, oh, the past isn't here. This is the, now is all we have. It was, you know, at the gonad, gonad level of realizing like, this is, it's gone, gone, gone is the way you said it. That opens you. I mean, I would imagine, um, this is what I'm going to verify with you. It's like that, that opens to a, And a, a space of, of, of real freedom to step, be, speak, who, uh, something that's totally undetermined. Meaning you're, yeah. you're, you're no longer determined by a set yeah. series of circuitry or, or past experiences, and you're now wide open to... And that, that, yeah. I would imagine that's an awesomely heavy space to be in well 
remember there was a touch of that when I first realized that the past was gone. That means the future is wide open. And that, that was a very expansive, blue sky, beautiful, spacious feeling and, and optimistic. And now we're talking about a very similar event that has such a radically different impact where there is fear. Is it, do you happen to know if it's agoraphobia, the fear of open spaces? I think that's, yeah, agoraphobia, fear of crowds maybe, or fear of being out. Okay, well, so I'm talking about the fear of open spaces, like the person who stands on a prairie and says, this is too crazy, I can't stand this. That's, it's, it's much more like standing on the prairie and seeing it go on for miles. And, and there's no house around, and there's no car, and there's no phone, and there's no newspaper, and there's no time, and there's no anything. And it, it, th- there's such a sense of exposure and vulnerability to the little one that, that any more is just, it, this, it, this little one is going to pop, the bubble pops, and the surface of the bubble is gone, and that's the end of the story, is the story this one is imagining. But what's, what, the, this notion of, that outside is where all that space is, that, that also begins to shift, and there's there's a feeling that when I turn inside out, I disappear. I'm gone. That's the end of me. And, and that process is happening, and I don't control it anymore. Hmm. That, for me, was extremely fearful. And you said that that happened, was this about two years after we had met on that retreat? Did that, that level of fear okay, hang on. come in? No, that was while I was still at okay. Pandita Rama, so it was okay. months. Months. Okay, now I want to shift again. And so this is the third level of responding to your mm-hmm. question. Uh, there's an American teacher, Shinzen Young. Are you familiar with him? Uh, obliquely. Yeah, yeah I've heard of, heard of him. I've read some of his stuff. Yeah. And, okay. Yeah, just... okay. So I, I attended a retreat with him a few years ago. And he is extremely well-versed. Like, rarely do I use the word genius. Like, I don't think I know anybody who's a genius, except for him. <laughs> encyclopedic. He knows many languages. He translated Japanese for... uh, Anyways, instead of telling you things that are wow about him, I want to tell you something that is... like If the earth could say the word wow, this, this is what I'm talking about. So he's making this distinction between source and everything that flows from source. 
And it becomes quite relatively easy for me to understand. Source is not somewhere back there like 13.8 billion years ago during the Big Bang. Source is right now. And, and what is flowing out of source is happening right now and everywhere, just like the words that are flowing out of me. They're continuous. So to what extent can I come to source? And Josh, like I was doing, <laughs> I was doing my Greg thing of like, I'm going to sit all night. I'm going to give this everything I got. And I did. And, and I'd be so tired during the day. And then I remember Josh feeling like if, if my mind could be quiet long enough, it could merge with source. But it couldn't be quiet long enough. There would be thoughts and it'd be like the wind, the wind of thoughts is so powerful. And I'm, oh, I'm making such an effort to just be aware, just be attentive and not ripped away with thoughts. And, and I'm telling him this <laughs> and he, I don't, uh, he he was um, encouraging, and and the the day the retreat ends, the night before that, I spend all night in the Dharma Hall. Dawn happens. Somebody else comes into the Dharma Hall. Josh, I feel so sad. And disappointed. And you felt sad, and disappointed when this when this person entered. His, no, I'm I'm about to explain how or, or rather why all of that is happening. There's the realization that being able to practice with intensity that I thought was needed is coming to an end, both in this very retreat, but also perhaps in my life. Like I do not right now have a vision of me going to Burma or any other monastery and practicing with all the power I have. So the thought was, this was my last shot at enlightenment. And I miss. I miss. I was so sad. And then it's time to practice again. So I go into practice. Josh, it, it's like, remember how I was describing sources here and me is over here attempting to merge and fighting the wind, etc. 
like fucking torrents of mm. wind. And what happened in that next sit is it, it is as though this came forward and embraced mm-hmm. this. So, so it's, it's like source and, came forward and embraced little Greg. Yeah. But yes, it's a little bit like the ocean comes to the raindrop. This is different than the raindrop coming to the ocean. There, there is, Josh, there is such grace and generosity and mm-hmm. kindness and beauty that the source would come to the raindrop. Mm. Now it's a chilling, it's a giving me chills. It's, it's beautiful. It's like a, I mean, it sounds like grace. It, it sounds like, yeah. amen, grace. You know, at raindrop, at raindrop A couldn't do any more. Raindrop said, this is it. I've, I've, I've given it my best shot. I've done everything that I could. And it wasn't enough. And just the, the clarity of no more me is yeah, yeah. See, kind of shaking. It's like take a raging fire and subtract the rage and subtract the obscene heat. And, and, and that, and clarity can be like that, except it's calm. It's not raging, except there's such intensity with it, but it's such a calm intensity. And Josh, there was, there was a, another meditator, actually a friend of mine who came in and, and I have, this is still before most people are there. And and I watch him, like I can see in his body, he's t- he's tired. And now I'm speculating. He's frustrated. He he's disappointed. He's angry. Um, he feels like he's wasting his time. And I watch his body um, shift the the cushion that he's on and and kick it, like kick it into place. My heart just goes out to him. I can see the kind of pain. Or I, I, I don't right now. I, I'm thinking I might be imagining his pain, but maybe not. Maybe in that state, I'm able to see directly into what is going on with another human being, and and and. The response was full compassion. Now, when my wife behaves like that, and that is not compassion. <laughs> there is frustration, irritation, annoyance. I want to get away from that. <laughs> okay, so that's a whole other discussion, like bringing that into day-to-day life. 
But I do want to say that this, what we're talking about as a human experience is possible. And at least if, if my story has any significance to anybody else, you make all the effort you can and it won't be enough. And that may not matter. That I think what you're in some ways you're describing an archetypical journey where the seeker sets out filled with energy and kind of, uh, I'm going to go get it. Go get, I'm going to yeah, go, I'm yeah, gonna yeah. do this right. right. Yeah. And I, I've certainly, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I go back and forth with this myself still. Um, but in, in the way you set that up or describe that with the, the, the raindrop being embraced by the mm. ocean, like an oceanic, mm. the ocean of source coming mm. to the raindrop. It's yeah. It, it, you, there's a moment there that the, the raindrop realizes the, the futility of all its effort, which it still had to do to realize the futility of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh my and, God. Whoa. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the, the therapist that I, I mentioned, Jack Engler, and this is something we will, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into in future conversations, but he, he described the whole path specifically all those stages of insight, but he described the whole path as a path of grieving, grieving of what, Wow. And, you know, initially he said, you know, there's, there's personal things you'll grieve, you know, your treatment of others, the treatment of yourself, you'll grieve though. You'll go through yeah. grieving with that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but what, what yeah. he really meant though, the deeper end, when you, when you, when your consciousness is freed of the illusion of being a separate raindrop. Yeah. Yeah. He described it as like you grieve a sense of a self that you realize was never there in the first place. <laughs> But you grieve the loss of a sense of self that was never there in the first place. And yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to describe it, I guess, you know, kind of conceptually, but the what you what you touched on, I want to just hold that, what you touched on with, with the sense of the the release into or the, the embrace of kindness, the embrace of compassion that that mm-hmm. in a sense flooded you. Right? Mm-hmm to the point that you hear or see somebody else, like mm. the, you see another raindrop still dribbling around, hoping yep. to get it, get to the ocean, trying to like yep. get down the side of the window or whatever. You know, you, you, I, I, I felt this too at times and I don't live from this by any means all the time, but the moments where I've mm. tasted that kind of release and you realize nothing, you couldn't do a thing to bring that about. You could only not do, not do, you could only stop. <laughs> mm-hmm. It does bring, I mean, you have compassion for all your efforting, 
but you, I think one becomes in, incredibly sensitive to the, the pain born of, yeah. Tr- in a way, trying to muscle oneself to the ocean. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I really like that. Muscle yourself to the ocean. Yeah. You know, Josh, I wanted to comment on the grief uh, for a self that you realize never existed. That wasn't my experience. I didn't grieve. I was in... Well, I, I want to take the, I want to use the mm-hmm. word awe, but without it implying now I'm useless because I can, I can only be in awe. I, no, there's like in awe and change the oil in awe and clean up breakfast. And that. So it's, there was no grief. There was, there, there was just the happiness of ocean. Maybe, I mean, in that sense too, like grief may take on a very different tone in this, in that, Hmm. I mean, and we're going to talk about this down the road, but we're just sort of putting a lot of topics out on the table here, but with, Good. experiences I've had through psychedelics with psychedelics, which I say reliably bring me to some tone, some taste of what mm-hmm. you're describing. Um, yeah. It's joyous, but there's a lot of tears. And, and so it's like, mm. it's not a painful grief. It's a, hmm. it's a, there's a, a, a tears of joy of the release itself, but also the compassion for oh, you know oh, all sentient yeah, beings who yeah. haven't yet realized that yeah, yeah, yeah haven't yeah. yet tasted yeah that release yeah 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 so are you i just want to circle back to the word grief are you calling that grief i you know i, I I'm, I'm 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 i guess i'm i'm moving around the word as, as just one okay. way of like entering into a discussion around what you're describing. Yeah. Well, what has this been your experience to grieve the loss of a self that you realize never existed? I would say no, because that sense of self that I've seen through at times has um, reasserted itself. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, yeah, Yeah, that's right. It has not gone, baby. So I it's mean, a potential, yeah. I get um, but I, I guess you know. I, I think it maybe it speaks to the fear you're describing. The fear, like going back to the circling back to the fear, mm-hmm. in that open expanse of possibility of no longer being defined by past conditioning. Yep. And that's why I was trying to get it with the idea: is there a burden? I mean, there, there is a. There can be fear. There can be incredible lightness but it's a it's unchartered territory right mm-hmm. and yes yeah. yes by definition yeah. it's uncharted yeah so here, here's one of the beauties of the raindrop ocean analogy is that the the fundamental element is the same 
What do you mean by that? The fundamental fundamental element being the same. Ah. Water and water, and and that that merger, like raindrop, definitely gone, but not the right. water. Yeah. Well, you know, I, this has been great so far. I, I want to just be mindful of time. We're probably approaching our upper limit. Yes. Um, great. But yes, this is for listeners. This is the kind of conversation we want to continue to have. This is what the kind of conversation we're intending to have. We're going to continue to explore um, the dharmic spiritual themes, but also the what you've hinted at a few times is the integration or the realization of whatever we realize on the cushion or in practice into and within the daily conditions of our lives um, where the rubber hits the road. So there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about there. Um, I think, you know, I want to plant a flag around our own personal struggles, you know, coming off retreats or even on retreats and, and, and get into that a bit more. Um, there's a lot of a lot of avenues. I don't think we're going to lack for topics to to have a, a good conversation on. Right, right. But Josh, I have a, a question for you that that's about your audience. Um, I'm wondering what percentage you think is uh, educated within the Vedic tradition or in yoga. I would say a good part of the audience is probably coming from contemporary yoga culture. Um, okay. Because part of the reason that I'm asking is some of the practices that I've been doing and the learning that I've been doing is much more within that tradition. And there are ways of talking about fundamental duality that are Mm. so beautiful to me. And, and I want to bring that into Absolutely, our definitely. discussion. We can talk about all forms of yeah. all traditions, whatever you, that you want to yeah. bring to the table. Okay. Um, du- duality, okay. non-duality. All right. And then one, one more piece is if your audience has questions for us, um, I, I would be interested in knowing what the questions are because that, it indicates yep. an interest already. And you and I don't have to fish around for what we think is interesting. <laughs> Although sometimes like today, I realized I told some stories that I wanted to tell that I haven't told uh-huh. very often. And, and with you, Josh, I feel, uh, a, a, both a resonance and a receptivity and a kind of understanding that, is rare yeah, it's rare for me for too. Me. And that, you know, we mentioned this at the the first call we had before we started taping. Uh, and I think I've been doing the podcast primarily by myself and just kind of doing temp, uh, interviews with people about the book they wrote mm-hmm. on this or that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's all good. Mm-hmm. But I think to, for the evolution of the, of the, the podcast itself and, and uh, for an ability for me to, uh, expose more of myself and I need, I needed you. Mm-hmm. I need you. <laughs> I need, yes, I need yes. that alignment. I totally. Get that. Um, and I think, yeah, I do think we'll get questions and, uh, we'll be able to 
Well, it's to be determined what level of frequency we're going to have these, these conversations, but um, mm-hmm. I'm hoping fairly consistently, whether it's once a month, once every other month, that kind of thing mm-hmm. with your time constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think, I think it will be, it's going to be a fruitful conversation for, for us and, and hopefully for others. Yes. <laughs> and I, and I, you know, I, and it's, it's, it's very easy to talk to you. So I want to thank you for, all that you bring and um, the generosity of your spirit. And uh, I think this new direction is, is, is growing and towards the light. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. Well, um, you're welcome. And I'm happy, really happy to re-engage with you as a friend and as sort of a commentator about our lives and our experience. And, you know, Josh, I also feel from you an openness to my questions. So likewise, that those allow me to feel, no, hang on. That's not quite the right language under these conditions. Yeah. I feel really good. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Greg, great to see you. Until next time. All right. Okay, thanks so much for listening to today. I know that was a long conversation, but I hope you enjoyed Greg and I rolling up the sleeves and really just talking about what uh, kind of intense, deep practice can be like. Um, I do encourage you to stay tuned. We will be having more conversations with with Greg and people like Greg that I've met. Um, and in the meantime, if you'd like to practice yin yoga, qigong, and meditation with me and my partner Terry when we broadcast our classes from our home in Maine, um, do check out the opportunity to practice with us in the Riverbird Sangha. When you click on the link in the show notes or you go to our homepage, you'll when you subscribe to the newsletter, you will receive a free copy of what the what, why, and how of yin yoga, which is my kind of 45, 50-page PDF ebook on the essential things you need to know as a yin yoga practitioner. Um, when you when you'll get that, and you'll also get two weeks uh, uh, an opportunity to practice with us in our sangha for two weeks for free. So we look forward to practicing with you. And um, just in, to acknowledge again, all that's up alive and, and kind of uh, rattling around in the world, I wish you well. I hope your practice offers you a refuge. And I encourage you to keep practicing, stay safe, stay strong, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care.